Produced in association with KPMG Australia, this is What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Hello, I'm Bernard Salt. On this edition of the program, we discuss how Australia can positively progress its aged care sector. There needs to be a focus on remaining independent and connected to community for as long as possible. And this means making sure that wellbeing uh, and a focus on prevention is factored into our lifestyles. Once people do require aged care services, uh, the system needs to be easy to enter, uh, easy to navigate and accessible for people. And we look at examples of overseas countries that are doing aged care well. People always seem to point to the elder care system in Sweden. They provide the highest number of healthcare workers for the elderly, um, including having people there called fixers, who curtain hang and change light bulbs. Priority is also given to ageing in place. 94% of the elderly live at home. That's all coming up when we discover what happens next. Well, as the Benjamin Franklin quote goes, nothing in life is certain except for death and taxes. But before death, it usually comes ageing. And really for people around the globe and in Australia, the notion of ageing is a relatively new phenomenon due to improvements in lifestyle and medical care, treatment and technology. And there's no doubt we face some really big challenges in developing positive strategies to help people age well. But as a community, it's essential we answer these challenges with innovative ideas, looking for the opportunities for growth and how to do things better. To look at this more closely, I spoke to Pat Garcia, CEO of Catholic Health Australia, and Nikki Doyle, Partner Health, Ageing and Human Services, KPMG. Nikki Doyle, Pat Garcia, thanks for joining the program. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bernard. Nikki, if I could start with you, you've done some significant work in the aged care area. It's clear that we as a nation need to have a strategy that better serves our elderly citizens. And obviously, this is a very big question. But in your view, how can we make the most positive impact in this area? It is a big question, Bernard. I think one of the, the probably the most important things is actually to reframe how we as an Australian society view our older Australians. We very much, I think, fear the ageing process and we don't necessarily embrace or understand even what is normal and what isn't normal and how we can actually amend that. And I think we also don't value our older Australians. And I think if we as a society can reframe how we view the ageing process, how we view and value our older Australians, I think then we can actually really reframe and move forward in terms of how we deliver a range of different services and supports to older Australians as they age. Pat, you've also written on this and have said that we must do better by our elders. How do we do this? Yes, Brian, there are so many things. It's such a wicked problem, isn't it? Uh, the Commission took two years of hearings to get through it all. Its final report was over 1,600 pages long and they made nearly 150 recommendations. I agree a lot well, with a lot of what Nikki said. I think uh, we need to start by recognising the problem that we've been ignoring older Australians for a very long time. We live in a youth-obsessed culture that likes to see young people in our magazines and on our television screens, and we'd rather not see or hear about the elderly. Older Australians often complain to me about invisibility, that at a certain age, usually about 70, they just become invisible. 
that people stop looking at them in the eye, that it becomes hard for them to get service at the cafe or shops. We need to recognize that we ignore the elderly. And we also need to recognize that a part of that is the prevalence of ageism in the community. From a strategy point of view, how do we harness the efforts of communities, healthcare workers, governments and administrators to make or to gain a positive momentum that makes changes for the better? Uh, Nikki, your thoughts. So I, I think there's, um, I think it's a really big task, but I do think that the Royal Commission um, report and findings are a really good way to actually rally and to get everyone on the same page. Um, I think building on what um, on what Pat has said, um, that I think the first thing is actually to really tackle how we um, perceive and we consider people as they age and to really start to actually shift that change because that will actually flow through to all those different areas. Um, I think we also then need to make sure that we actually really listen to um, our older Australians. I think the Royal Commission has been a good starting point to make sure to start to hear their voices and hear um, what older Australians want. But we need to make sure that that continues and that we continue to put that at the middle of every step that we make as we move forward to actually better improve aged care. And I think lastly, we also need to look at ways that we can share and collaborate better because there's actually excellent practices out there, there's excellent services, there's excellent ideas that are in play, but we just don't have enough opportunity to bring that together to actually make sure that those ideas are then um, are then used further in other ways. And Pat, your thoughts on this? Yeah, two things, Bernard. I think um, we need to acknowledge responsibility for the problems that have occurred. And, and I think there's a lot to be said for further collaboration within the sector. Um, I had a meeting with the Minister for Ageing a month ago, uh, Richard Colbeck, and he said it was important for everyone to acknowledge responsibility for this, that it wasn't just one part of the sector's fault. It wasn't just the government's fault, not just the provider's fault. I think providers, government and the community need to acknowledge responsibility. There are so many problems in the sector. It's so easy to point the finger. The problem with pointing fingers is that nothing gets done. Um, the other thing that I think needs to happen is that more cooperation is required. We do need to work together. Much of this is already happening. Um, a lot of the aged care providers are working together through the aged care collaboration now to lobby for a particular platform of reform. The consumer advocacy groups are coming together. Likewise, in terms of uh, workforce and wage increases for the sector, the key peak bodies, the employers, the employees are coming together uh, to table a position to the Fair Work Commission. Are there examples from our global counterparts that have a more robust and perhaps a more proactively geared approach to caring for their ageing populations? And if so, where are they? Nikki, your thoughts? This is a really interesting question. I, I think particularly over the last 12 months or so with COVID, um, COVID has shown that collectively across the world that it doesn't matter where you live, that essentially we are not caring for our older people as well as we could be. Having said that, I think there are examples where that is different. And I think particularly looking towards, I think there's some excellent examples in the Netherlands um, about how they 
deliver um, their services. And I think one of the things that's important to note is that it's very localised to their population. It isn't necessarily a countrywide response, but I think they also have a different approach and consideration of their older population, which helps in terms of how they actually are more proactive in engaging with their older people. Pat, which countries do ageing well? Any, any thoughts on that one? Yeah, Bernard, people always seem to point to the elder care system in Sweden. In fact, the Global Age Watch Index, which measures international data on the quality of life of older people, uh, they gave uh, Sweden the ranking of number one. Uh, Australia came 17th. Sweden allocates um, 3.6% of its GDP on long-term care and provides the highest number of healthcare workers for the elderly over the age of 65. By contrast, Australia only spends 1.4% of its GDP. Um, there are two things about this, the Swedish model that is, is really impressive. Um, first is preventative health is really valued. Uh, physicians in Sweden don't just prescribe medicine, they also prescribe physical activity. They're really careful about personal injury of older people and um, they do a lot of practical things to reduce injuries from falls, um, including having people there called fixers who uh, curtain hang and change light bulbs for elderly people. Priority is also given to ageing in place in Sweden. 94% of the elderly over the age of 65 live at home and are given the opportunity to live an independent life there with supported assistance. I love the idea of fixes, uh, Pat, in, yeah, it's in, great. Uh, in Sweden. <laughs> From a change perspective, what are the top three things that could be achieved that would make a big difference for both carers and for our aged population, Pat? Uh, building and supporting the workforce is really critical. Uh, we need more of them, they need to be better paid, and they need to be better trained. The Royal Commission has said that the number of care workers needs to increase by an extra 363,000 by 2050. So we need a 10-year workforce strategy that talks about training, recruitment, and the supply of labour. There also needs to be better pay, and I already talked about a combined government employer union application to the Fair Work Commission. And we also need to understand that relationships are really key uh, to a strong care workforce. The commission indicated, and I agree, that aged care is all about people and relationships are the foundation of all human interaction. So finding people who are good with other people that um, I once had a CEO tell me that the way to find the best age carers was to find people who had good relationships with their grandparents. Finding an empathetic, well-trained workforce is key. Uh, and Nikki, has, is there anything that you would add to that list? So I, I think absolutely workforce, as Pat has said, is critical. I think the other two components for me is about making sure that we empower um, people to know about the ageing process, to understand about what's normal and what's not, and what can potentially be prevented or reversed. And then also helping them to understand how the aged care system can actually help support them and actually help them prevent potentially going into residential aged care. I think that's absolutely critical. And then I think the third part is about having building a flexible system that supports that early intervention and early engagement for people um, and enabling them to stay at home. I think if we can get those three components together, I think we'll actually go a long way to actually making a really significant difference. Nikki and Pat, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Thank you. My pleasure.
As mentioned, innovation in the aged care sector is key to making positive changes for elderly Australians. To explore this, I caught up with Patrick Reed, CEO of the IRT Group. Patrick Reed, thanks for joining the program. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. Patrick, Australia's ageing population is growing. What are the key areas that need to be reformed to look after our older people in a positive way? Well, I think that there's probably three areas to consider. And firstly, Australians need to recognise that they will hopefully have the opportunity to grow old um, and need to plan for this stage of life, not wait until it's upon them. Secondly, there needs to be a focus on remaining independent and connected to community for as long as possible. And this means making sure that wellbeing uh, and a focus on prevention is factored into our lifestyles. To be honest, that's something that uh, hasn't been a strong point for Australians. And thirdly, uh, once people do require aged care services, uh, the system needs to be easy to enter, uh, easy to navigate and accessible for people. Uh, currently, it's too complex, uh, too difficult, and uh, makes it hard for people to get what they need when they need it. So really, a streamlined system that supports interventions of care uh, really is key for our country. Patrick, there's an increasing trend of residents staying in their communities and using home care. Do you see that trend continuing to grow? Yes, I do. I, I think the Royal Commission validated what many of us already knew, that people wish to remain independent uh, and in their own home or accommodation of choice for as long as possible. I think the dislocation from our communities uh, and supports, you know, really should be actively avoided where practical, and that does mean staying close to home. But it also should be remembered that uh, simply having adequate access to primary care, uh, such as our local general practitioners and hospital services, shouldn't be taken for granted, as many of those outside the big cities don't have this. And really, um, other services that people will need as they age, and that could be rehabilitation, palliation, some end-of-life supports, will still require specialist aged care providers to be nearby. So I suppose, Bernard, my real fervent hope is that people, especially those of um, ATSI heritage or, or culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, are able to age in their place of choice, uh, remaining proudly independent with some assistance until they die, and I think, too, the wish to age in place will simply grow stronger as time goes on and needs to be supported. I can't imagine baby boomers wanting anything other than control over their own destiny in their later years, I imagine, especially yes. the baby boomers. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, again, you know, all the indicators point towards us, uh, you know, orienting ourselves around that goal, which is really important. What strategies need to be in place to support these changing trends in aged care to deliver a positive caring environment? Well, I guess, again, looking at the Royal Commission, there was 148 recommendations and no strategy is worth anything unless it's executed. So um, I think the main thing is to try and eliminate ageism, uh, which is prevalent in most Western societies. Uh, we don't really revere our elders as many other cultures do, which is really to the detriment of, of all society, uh, but manifests as a lack of funding and services for older people in our, our example. And really a key strategic element um, is for people to talk about what ageing is, uh, not avoid it. Uh, how it will affect us all if you're lucky enough to live that long uh, and how can we all contribute to a better outcome for our elders. And really, I think the key for me, Bernard, is planning. You know, planning for ageing, uh, both at a personal and a public level is key uh, and really building our communities to integrate older people and their needs, as we do really with children and youth, is important. Um, so those age-friendly systems uh, that will ensure that older Australians continue to contribute to our society in many different and varied ways, I don't think they're the, the economic passengers uh, that are, they're sometimes characterised as. Um, so encouraging that participation is a great way to enhance this. Um, so I think for us, it, it really is that those interventions um, and people being able to age as they wish. 
there's no doubt that COVID-19 has affected the aged care sector and also our carers. How do we learn from these lessons? I think the first one is pandemics aren't new. Uh, They've been with us for all through human history, but we seem to think short term and don't think we're going to see another one when it comes along. And we we need to heed those lessons of pandemics past, I think, as well. But really the main lesson that that we've seen from COVID is that nobody's an island. Uh, And being isolated from your family, friends or community, um, has I think everybody made um, as hopefully made us appreciate even more the importance of community and friends. And we know within residential aged care facilities that any up to 40% of residents uh, have no family or friends who visit them at all. Um, so often our staff, my staff, um, are their family. And I think, you know, COVID made us all experience this isolation and hopefully we appreciate how important it is to have social contact and, and interaction. And that staying connected has many social and, and physical wellbeing benefits, uh, not to mention, of course, mental health. Um, so if nothing else, COVID has shown us that humans are social animals and we need to support each other. I think the other lesson we can all take away, mate, is washing our hands for 20 seconds yeah. or more at every yeah. chance you get will probably let you live 20 years longer. Patrick, that's very sad. I think you said 30% of people in aged care don't have family visiting. Is that is that correct? Up to 40%, yeah, and sometimes more. So it's, it is a really difficult part, I think, for people when they do age, if they don't have close family or friends, or even if the family and friends don't visit them, um, that isolation is so difficult for them. Um, so it really is important that we keep people connected. Are there any international examples of countries that are innovating in the aged care area and are making positive changes for the elderly? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about ageing is it's relatively new for us as a species. Um, and no particular country really is is knocking it out of the ballpark in terms of ageing. But there are a lot of bright spots, and I think that's the exciting part for us. And as we said earlier, with that wish to remain independent for as long as possible. Um, in the USA, there are naturally occurring retirement communities uh, where people have come together to support each other. Um, and there's an example called Beacon Hill in Boston, where people do live together in supportive communities. Uh, many of the Nordic countries um, have their public health and social welfare, welfare structures Um, which have a lot of the features and benefits we'd like to see and and where recommendations of the Royal Commission. Um, And really that independent healthy ageing is considered a right and something that should be supported um, really through social mores, but also too publicly funded through taxation systems uh, to enable people to remain healthy and independent. So I think also too, you know, looking closer to home, Australia has thrown up a lot of interesting models and research around supporting our old Australians. really normalising dementia supports in our neighbourhoods and also to options for people to live and die peacefully at home rather than hospital. So although no one country has a monopoly on how to do it best, uh, I think there's a lot of interest in making sure that we, we do support that vision of people being at age in place and live happily. Patrick Reed, thanks for helping us discover what happens next. Thank you very much, Ben. Hello, I'm Whitney Fitzsimmons, the executive producer of What Happens Next. And now it's that time in the program for something a little bit different where we turn the tables and I get to interview our host and resident demographer, Bernard Salt. So, Bernard, wasn't it interesting to hear from Pat that in Sweden they have fixers for their elderly? And I believe you you actually know the Swedish pronunciation of that. Well, Whitney, I did not have that off the top of my head, but I love that concept that in Sweden they have fixes. So if you need a towel rail or something like that, they'll send a handy person to your house. 
and they'll fix things for you. So I love the idea of just calling the fixer. I was convinced that they would have a really exotic term for fixer. So when you Google uh, fixer, translate to Swedish, it comes up with Fixar. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I've got that pronunciation right, and maybe. Uh, so it's fixar, is it? It's, it's not fixar, but fixar. Okay. You need to actually throw it to the back of your throat. But I, look, I, on a serious note, I do think that's a terrific concept because not every person who's uh, elderly has the capacity to adjust their environment to make uh, to make their um, their home work for them. So having a fixar to come to your home to uh, fix problems. Um, in fact, I want one right now. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the things on a more serious note, actually, uh, Patrick had said something I found really startling, and that was, you know, up to 40% of people in aged care don't have visitors, uh, family or friends. As a demographer, what do you think we should do about that, Bernard, or what can be done about that? Well, I'm really confronted about this. I have come across this observation previously. Some years ago, I spoke uh, at an aged care home. And what struck me was how many of them said that they didn't have regular contact with their family. And in fact, there were quite some, some tensions there. And it occurred to me that not everyone as they age have families that are warm and communicative and supportive and so forth. And I suppose there is another group, maybe because we're moving around more frequently, uh, then you might not be in the same city or even in the same country as your ageing parents. So you might like to visit them, but you simply can't do it because you're not in close physical proximity. That, I think, is certainly going to be something to uh, manage in the future through technology, perhaps, but uh, clearly from the discussions of the experts that the more social contact, the better for the elderly. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's this program that's been out, um, All People's Home for Four-Year-Olds. I don't know if you've seen that. I love have it, seen, yes. Have you seen that show? Yes. It's fantastic, isn't it? Well, it's not just the energy and the connectivity and the learnings also for the kids, but it just, again, shows me that the greatest issue for the frail elderly is isolation and disconnection. And, you know, if you don't have family close by within drop-in distance, then you have a different experience in much later life. And don't you think that it also sort of starts that conversation around the issue of, um, and I think both of our interviews um, spoke about this, the feeling of irrelevance that elderly people start to feel and that they don't contribute or that they don't, they're not seen to contribute. They, they do contribute, but this sort of addresses or starts to address that. Yes, I think we're talking about the feeling that they are making a contribution, that they're regarded as passengers. But in actual fact, they have paid their fare by paying taxes, raising a family, doing whatever they were doing right throughout their life. That You don't actually have to be contributing outwardly to uh, society beyond your family and so forth at that stage in life. You've, you've earned the right to pursue your own interests, I suppose, later in life. All right. Well, that's all for the program. Thank you, Bernard. Thank you, Whitney. And thank you for listening to What Happens Next. You've been listening to What Happens Next with Bernard Salt. Produced in association with KPMG Australia. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify 
or wherever you find your podcasts.